0: Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Thomas.
1: And I'm Shreya. And we're your hosts for Q-Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world.
0: This week on Q-Talks, we are talking to Marcel Gerung, CEO and founder of Cited, a startup using digital diagnostics to revolutionize the early detection of cancer. Hi, Marcel. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the show. Maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so... Um
2: Actually, my background is in nanoscience, which is a mixture between between physics, chemistry and biology, where I did my undergrad in Germany several years ago. Um, and then afterwards, I moved into medical imaging with a focus on data analysis and machine learning. Um, and then I came to Cambridge in 2017 to write my master thesis, actually back then um, in the oncology space where we analyzed um, images from a modality called photoacoustic imaging and magnetic resonance imaging. Um, to explore different, different, different aspects of tumor biology, um, and then afterwards, I actually started working um, in a slightly more, slightly more machine learning focused space in deep learning and computer vision on digital pathology images, um, and yeah, that's actually where my, what my academic background is. Um, from, from how cited actually plays into that. Um, cited is a result of my, um, of my PhD, and we've started setting up. Over the duration of my PhD right after we found some of the niches in, in which we can position some of the technology I was involved in. But, but yeah, that much about my background.
1: Great, if you can give us the ele- elevator pitch for CITED.
2: Yeah, so um, so what CITED is doing, we're focusing on, on building and providing digital diagnostic infrastructure to revolutionize early detection of cancer. And what we do is we use artificial intelligence um, to discover and build biomarkers that help the understanding of clinicians and therefore, of course, improve patient outcomes. How we do this is slightly different than most other companies. We actually um, are building a very, very strong operational backbone, which supports this deployment process of diagnostic tests at scale. So we really, really are a very process focused company, which wants to streamline workflows. And that ranges from logistics over sample analysis, all the way to how we deal with the clinical pathway support and implementation and clinical practice. And, of course, our main goal is is high impact on clinician efficiency, but also a very, very strong perspective on health economic benefit. Um, In more practical terms, um, our first product and service is um, in the space of early detection of esophageal cancer, where we try to detect Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is a very, very big problem, especially in the Western world where um, people who are diagnosed with advanced esophageal adenocarcinoma or advanced esophageal cancer face very, very poor survival, long term survival. Um, less than 15% within five years. Um, But if this disease is diagnosed early by finding this pre-malignant lesion called Barrett's esophagus, this lesion can actually be treated, which then massively increases the long-term survival of these patients. And that's exactly what SITED is working on in the beginning with a very, very strong perspective on going beyond that at some point as well and really thinking about how is early detection done today and how does it have to be done in the next five and ten years.
0: So maybe if we step back... One step uh, for someone who's not a cancer specialist. How is cancer detection being done now, and where does AI come into this? Yeah,
2: actually, actually, very good point. Because um, there there are many different ways. I mean, what what most people out there probably have have um, have come across are different imaging modalities that's either using X-ray or computer tomography or MRI. <clears throat> and and for all of these imaging modalities, especially for the for the two latter ones, um, most people are probably familiar with them by if they're going to going to a hospital, they have to go into one of these very large noisy tubes for an MRI, um, and lie in there for for several for several minutes or well maybe even up to an hour. Um, and what those modalities are doing is they basically give you a way or they give doctors a way to look into the body of people or patients um, and try to find whether there's anything that looks different to what should usually be there. That's probably one of the, that's the first option basically. Then I think we have two different ones uh, or two other ones, which are more based on what can you collect directly from a patient. And I think um, there are two big different streams. The first one is um, doing blood-based detection tests. So you take blood and you look for something within the blood, which might be indicative for this person or this patient having cancer somewhere in their body. That's, That's option number two. And then number three is, something which I would usually call targeted sampling, where, for example, if you have a, let's assume you have a mole or you have something which looks slightly suspicious or there's a lump somewhere, you try to directly go to that lesion or to that abnormality. You take a sample from that lesion or abnormality and then you analyze it in a laboratory afterwards. But I think those are the three main different ways how how you can detect cancer. That's not necessarily only for early detection because, as I said, if you, for example, have a very large lump somewhere or a mole which looks very suspicious, that's a very... Very obvious thing, which can already be quite advanced. But but yeah, I think it usually falls into one of these three categories how you can how you can how you can detect cancer.
1: And so cancer is such a wide space to be playing in with so many different organs that you could be targeting. Um you've obviously you've given us that example of Barrett's esophagus. Um but when you're developing a technology, like you said, you you want to be the the major player in early cancer detection. Um, is that across all organs um, or all like indications of cancer? In which case, um, do you have to keep that in mind when you're um, creating your product from the start, or do you create it specifically for the first um, indication, e.g., e. Barrett's oesophagus?
2: Yeah, this is a this is if you look out there. Um, well, if you look at the technology landscape out there, you will see very very different approaches to this. If we talk about the the liquid biopsy field, for example, which is the second option I just mentioned, or the second, the second arm, which I just mentioned, which is based on, on blood-based or blood-based or other, other liquids from the body. Um, well, where you sample other liquids from the body and you find something in these liquids, which might be indicative for having cancer, um, in that specific area, it's quite a hot topic right now to determine which referring to your question, um, well in which way you can determine the so-called organ of origin Um, if you develop this from a technology perspective then i think there are two very two very distinct ways to do it one of them would be very platform technology driven which i think is always a very difficult word to use because you put yourself at risk of actually not asking the right clinical questions in the beginning so you build for example a platform technology which is very good in analyzing a specific part of um or a specific DNA sequence or a specific type of molecules Um, and by that you then have a very 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 great basis to actually ask more 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 clinical questions or actually more questions which put this technology into a context of a specific disease or a specific cancer but the problem with that is if you do it that way around you um you can run into the issue that you have a really great technology which works very well, but you're actually not asking the right questions and you're also not looking for the right thing. So what we actually have do, have been doing as well, which I think is usually a bit more, well, it constrains what a company or, well, that actually I think doesn't even only um, apply to companies. It also applies to academic research groups. If you ask a very specific clinical question, for example, in the context of of esophageal cancer where you... Um, where you, where you have a very defined disease spectrum, you can also tailor your technology right from the beginning to specifically being able to, to support the, the, the diagnostic process or diagnostic test or well diagnostic workflow for that specific disease. So from a technology perspective, I would say, put the clinical question first because afterwards or otherwise afterwards in the long run, it would be really, really, really tough to rationalize um, in what directions the technology should be taken, if it's not guided by an overarching question, which says, this is the this is the organ of interest we're looking at, or are we looking at something which is very broad, but then, of course, we risk that we are losing focus of the clinical question in mind, and, and how we will exist, exactly position it in the long run in the clinical pathway. If, if that makes sense, somehow?
1: Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, thanks.
0: So I think we can already um, tell that Cancer is a fascinating and extremely um, ambitious area to focus on, and and your background um, seems very well suited for this AI-based approach. Can you maybe talk us through a little bit as to what are some of the steps required to approach this with an AI-based uh, approach? The use, well, the
2: use of the word, but also the use of any AI or machine learning tools in in in, in any healthcare application has. Well, there's so much stuff happening over the last few years, which you guys I'm sure have come across as well. Um, I think one of the main main issues the, um, today are, well, I think there are two things. The first one is, and I don't want to emphasize that too much, but I just mentioned just before we talked about um, about the clinical question in mind. I think for, for building a tool, whether that's image-based or whether it uses different representations of data and then different algorithms on that data. I think the most important thing for anyone who's getting involved in applying machine learning tools on healthcare data is really, really understanding the domain in which the problem sits there tackling. So it's it's too easy to to go out there and you know use a few software packages and try to throw some algorithms or some some example code at some data set which is being provided, but then actually not being fully aware of what the implications of using using those packages actually is and how it treats your data and also how this impacts how the data would be interpreted by a clinician or by by an expert in the field afterwards if they look at them. That that starts with what input data do you have for your ma- models, but also then what output data do you actually provide and, and, and how much insight you can give people into how this output data is being provided. So I think that's the first very, very big point that is Domain knowledge is incredibly important for developing anything in the machine learning space in healthcare. I think it's probably actually one of the most important things. And and in my case, I actually, I think looking back at the last few years, I probably spent much more time also in the specific context of early, tec- early detection of esophageal cancer. A lot of time understanding the disease and the disease spectrum behind it. Because otherwise I would have had a really, really hard time to figure out how I have to develop algorithms which fit which fit the question we're asking as well from a clinical perspective, because that's actually what what matters at the end of the day is how can you provide additional information to a clinician that they are then able to make some guided decision for the patient, what treatment they will receive or or how they fit into maybe the next care pathway in which they need to go. Um, I think the second bit is um, that, the entire discussion around um, ethical implications and um, and well moral code in, in in using machine learning for for medical data. This is a this is a very very vast discussion where we I'm not sure whether we should go into depth in in, in this conversation. But um, there's a lot of questions being asked out there about um, how this data is being handled, where it's being stored. I think now as part of Corona um, of, of the Corona epidemic. Um, a pandemic, actually, we have seen quite a lot of different discussions around the world, around um, whether it makes sense to have these this data stored centrally and then analyzed centrally, then being sent back to users on the phone. Um, this is a completely different scale of question, but I think it's one that is very, very important always to keep in mind, especially if you work with very, very sensitive data, like patient data, which we do. So, um, how you approach this not necessarily from a question perspective but more from a from a moral perspective and what you think should the actual outcome be is is i think the second very 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 important point for for approaching anything in the healthcare related space with ai or machine learning models
1: and you've you've already touched on this but what do you think are some of the major barriers to entry or what are those that you have had to overcome so far in the healthcare space or specifically in the cancer space or those that are patient focused, uh, as a startup, have you come across any significant uh, sort of legal barriers or um, working with pharma or NHS and things like that?
2: Actually, yes. And probably, probably again, quite a few different ones. The, I think the main one is that um, it's very, very, well, even though on paper, it's not a very, very recent field. I think in, in the everyday life of most people, the words artificial intelligence, machine learning, they are linked to I think to a certain set of emotions and I think that's well, that matters actually quite a lot in healthcare. So if when we went out in the beginning um, and we we're working quite a lot with pathologists, which is a which is a field which is for many, many decades, se- centuries actually based on on, 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 on my, microscopes, physical microscopes where you have glass lights which contain cell samples or tissue samples, and pathologists are looking at these slides under the under the microscope. Um, one of the big issues there is if you come along and explain them, oh yeah, we have some some models which do this in a semi automated in an automated way. Then even if you even if you say semi automated, they will hear the word automated and there's a big question mark on their face, which is actually, I mean, first question, will this replace me? Which is some in some way the obvious question, but also how do I fit into this technology? So especially if you work with clinicians, I think the positioning of the technology and how you exactly want to impact their everyday life is very important. And one of the first things to keep in mind in also building the products, because it's very easy to get like, to get derailed by, 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 well, let's call it technological idealism about like wanting to buy, build an incredible, fully automated tool, which detects A, B, or C. But being very user centric is i think the most important thing and i think that's that's the biggest obstacle even though it's a real obstacle in the beginning because you can develop your product and you can develop your service and you can be happily happily ignoring this for quite some time but it will really 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 backfire so what we are trying to do is we're trying to involve a lot of people who will actually de- use these tools at the end of the day because because those are the ones those are the ones that actually matter to us and those are the ones which go to their peers and will say or oh, look at this. I work with, I'm working with this tool, which which improves my efficiency by quite a lot. Um, this is really great, and and it feels like it actually fits not not only maybe well not only the not only the want or the perceived need of that individual pathologist, but maybe the actual underlying need which we have worked towards solving for them or providing a product or a service that supports that need, which they might not even be actively aware of. So I think that's that's a crucial point. From a legal and regulatory perspective, I Mitray, mean, you just said it yourself briefly. Um, that is that is a that is a massive barrier uh, in that space as well. There's a lot of stuff happening right now around the medical device regulation, medical devices regulation in Europe, and there's some massive changes coming up as well. Um, but software as a medical device is 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 tricky. I mean, the, the good thing about well, I say tricky in a way that it's. Not super easy and not everyone can do it overnight, which of course is, is exactly how it should be. But then if you want to do it, it maybe puts some some hoops in your way, which you didn't really anticipate in the beginning. So if you talk about accreditations required to develop models and then actually having having the opportunity and ability to apply them in a healthcare setting, this is very highly regulated and something we actually we actually invest quite a lot of time on right now to make sure that we that that we are fully compliant in that way as well. But I think those are actually the two, two most important things which will come to my mind.
1: Mm -hmm. Great. And um, I'm particularly interested in the medical or medtech space. So uh, if I can just ask one more question in this area before we go on to talk about your entrepreneurial experiences more generally, Um, it's on touching on that last point that you made about the legal barriers um, or regulations that you have to face. Um, Have you had experience or what are your thoughts on the US versus UK and other markets in terms of um, as a medical startup, where is the biggest potential um, and that uh, mindset towards technology rather than um, those that are more resistant to it in the medical space?
2: I think with medical technology, you have one major advantage, no matter which jurisdiction you're looking at. It's it's as soon as you start doing something and you jump over these initial hoops, especially if you look at the legal and regulatory aspects of getting your basic infrastructure set up. Um, it's it's not as easy as in the tech space that someone can just come along and overnight make the same tool, well, sometimes literally overnight, but more more, more as a, well, several weeks, several months, maybe. Someone can just come along and, and reproduce your product and make it maybe slightly better, like put some more experience into it or just more resources in general. That's one of the good things I think which in whichever jurisdiction you're looking at is not always the case. Of course there's competition and competition is incredibly important for, for driving development for individual country, um, individual companies as well. But I think that's, that's, that's one of the bottom lines maybe about that industry as well. It's, it's usually high risk, high reward, but the good thing is a lot of investment goes into it and not only money, but also time and, even more time <laughs> um, that if someone else wants to replicate it there's quite a quite a high bar which they have to jump over first to to get to the same level where you are um, from from a more I would say from a more practical perspective I think one of the advantages we have in the UK or in Europe is that we have that we have unfortunately only within the individual countries not between the countries like we have it between the states and the US we have very well-functioning, well, to some extent, well-functioning healthcare systems, which if you really dive deep into these healthcare systems, you can get into a very, very good position for how you place your technology or your technologies or products in these healthcare systems and can really exhaust them. I mean, one of the things which I've discussed with quite a few people over the last few months is is this question of being a small fish in a big tank and a and a big fish in a small tank. And I think here in 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 European countries, and especially for example in the UK, where we have a very well constrained system by the NHS, it's much easier to become it's much easier to to exhaust that in a in a very positive way um, by really exploring every niche which you can occupy. And also the niches are not too far away from actually getting in touch with the right people to get into them. If we go to, to the US, in the tech space, I think that's quite apparent to everyone. Just if you follow the news and if you if you tap into if you tap into some of these news outlets covering these topics, it's a bit of a wild wild west, especially when you go into the tech space. Healthcare, I would say less so, but still significantly more than 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 most of the, most of the countries here in Europe or, or, or the UK. Um, so I think that's probably the most important differentiation. There's a, there's a cultural difference and a mindset difference, I think as well. Um, but I think that's something we can talk about in a second as well, I think, because how investors approach this topic mostly guides how entrepreneurs. Like lead their companies and develop their products. Um, and I think just the underlying mentality between investors already makes a massive difference of just how people approach, approach different jurisdictions.
0: Let's move the conversation to the entrepreneurial journey you've had so far. One question we were wondering about is how did you get started? And I believe you started this um during your PhD. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that happened.
2: Yeah, actually I have to go a few few years back Thomas. Um so right after I finished school I had a very small I started a very very small software development company where we did very very generic software development, which I actually kept until I came to Cambridge. And then, <laughs> and then I actually did something which which um, not a lot of people know, but I actually promised to myself that I would keep my fingers away from anything entrepreneurial for the duration of my PhD to really focus on, on that aspect and actually the things which really, really, really interest me. Um, well, what happened actually right after I started my PhD, I... I, I got connected and in touch with Rebecca Fitzgerald, who was very involved in my PhD as well. And I and I worked on quite a lot of data coming from the Cytosponge technology. Um, we then had just a lot of discussions around um, where the technology is today, where it should go in the next few years, um, and what can we do basically to, to make this technology happen. Um, we've, we've worked quite a long time on... On, on building a better understanding for where and how exactly we could fit in there with our background and our know-how and especially the the, the technologies um, I've been working on over the last few years and how we can make this into a, into a bundle which is attractive to investors. Um, but it was basically, I came to Cambridge, I started my PhD, um, a few months into that PhD, um, suddenly the questions which which we were mostly talking about became, well, they still say it academic, but there was always this somewhat entrepreneurial character on these questions as well, which, which is really how I think I function as well. But um, it was quite, it's quite interesting talking about this now looking back uh, two or three years um, and seeing what it has actually, well, what the consequence of it was, was, was until today. So, um, so that is actually, that is actually something which probably it's just part of my mindset. So even though, even though I said to myself, like, maybe let's, let's keep my hands off of anything entrepreneurial for the duration of my PhD. And then, and then rethink afterwards what I want to do next. Um, I think I just probably, it's just, I asked, I asked those questions and then they just, then they just like spiraled, spiraled
0: into, into where we are today, basically. So I I know that a a lot of supervisors in Cambridge and probably at other universities as well are are always slightly torn about their PhD students who are thinking very hard about um, entrepreneurial ideas. Because on the one hand, of course, they want them to focus on the PhD and that in itself is a very challenging project. On the other hand, of course, they recognize that applying some of the knowledge and, and thinking very actively about um, a startup is 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 also good. So maybe from your own experience, what would you advise uh, other students to do, or maybe h- how to think about this? So this is actually a bit of a shout out to Florian as well, who's my PhD
2: supervisor. But I think one of the most important things, and I, I fully appreciate, and from 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 other from friends and other 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 students here in Cambridge, I've heard lots of different stories about them approaching their supervisors, but it's, it's one of these things where if it's if, if, if as a student it you feel it's against your nature, I think, to explore these things, then it's something which should not be treated as something which just has to wait until your PhD is finished. Then what I did, for example, as well, I addressed this very openly with everyone who's involved in my PhD and, and stated that interest up front. Because I think only if you really state it up front, you give people the opportunity to react if you if you probably wait for half a year and and every time you're going home in the evening you think about some idea on how to commercialize the technology you're working on or technology you're involved in and then after half a year you come to your your supervisor and say oh I want to found a company I want to spin out a company I think they they want to feel some ownership over your thought process as well and if you just put facts in front of them I don't think that's really how that I don't think that's how um, how, how this could be best set up. If someone knows very early that they have that mindset or they are inclined towards that mindset, I think looking for this discussion and finding it very, very, very early and pursuing it as well is, is absolute key to keep this communication channel open that, that your supervisor is in every way they can be and won't be supportive of, of, of these ventures or these activities, I mean, as you guys know, I mean, there's so many other things which can be done in Cambridge as well, um, and people are involved in so many other projects. So I don't think that this should be treated as something which is like very distracting. I think it's actually something which which can be encouraged and probably would be encouraged by most supervisors if it's communicated the right way. Of course, if you explain to your supervisor who. Works with you on 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 finding a new drug for prostate cancer, and you tell them that you want to build um, headphones in your free time. That's probably a slightly different one, but um, but I'm sure I'm sure if this is positioned the right way, it, it still can work because I think it's most important to to support the the character of of the people as well. Um, but of course that means with sticking to some scientific principles and academic principles. But I don't think they need to be always overinterpreted.
1: And what's your experience as a technical founder, somebody that's come from the lab um and has that academic background um, and building from that towards a business? There's that stereotype of technical founders um, who are unable to pitch or know the business side of it. But has that been the case for you?
2: I think in some ways it's in some ways from my own in, in my own experience, it's something really, 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 really great because you always have this very inquisitive like tendency, or I always have this very inquisitive tendency to really understand what's going on and how it works. But that's a curse and a blessing at the same time as well. Blessing is that it gives you a very, very, very deep understanding of what you want to do and how you can, how you can translate this into something which is in a more commercial or, or entrepreneurial, um, entrepreneurial framework. The curse behind it is of course that, um, it's very easy then to lose focus. So I think being a technical founder, if you if you're very, very if you stay clear of all of the caveats which come with it, and you have other people as sounding boards who are very, very honest with you. And I mean we work with some amazing people at Cited as well who um who mentor me as well and who guide me through through some of these things which they've of course experienced in the past already. Um as a technical founder, I think that's even more important because it's so easy to lose sight of, of the things that actually matter and just being concerned with the details of the technology or the details of something, what someone from the software development team is working on right now. Um, so I think striking that balance is, is, is really, 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 really important. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm all in favor for technical founders, to be honest, because the mindset for approaching most problems um, in, 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 a, in an entrepreneurial space, um, it's in my opinion has been only very very helpful for myself as well having a somewhat quantitative background and being able to provide the same thinking and the same principles to approaching these problems in the other space
0: now we understand that you recently received a, a serious a investment and we would be really interested if you could tell us a little bit more about what led to that investment and what lessons have you learned during that process
2: so we we've Finished our first fundraising round um, with Morningside Venture Capital being being the lead investors into Cited. Now, we've also received a fairly large, um, actually two Innovate UK grants um, to support implementation um, of our technology. Um, and around the around the fundraising, um, this actually has been a very very interesting journey because. Some of the people listening to this podcast might know that, um, the site technology is going back quite a few years. So there's the, a lot of stuff has been happening in that space already. Um, but we were really, really trying to challenge the status quo at the time and understanding for how do we actually have to drive this forward? And what is the missing piece right now in the puzzle to, to make this happen and to actually get it, get it to patients beyond the clinical studies. Um, which have been done so far. Um, from an investor perspective, the great thing we had was there was a lot of visibility on the topic we have been working or we we, we are working on already before. So when we approached people, it was quite interest, quite easy for them to get a lot of insight into the into the technology. But um, and that's somewhat related now to what I to what we just discussed about being a technical founder. But as it is true for most things, actually, I think in the commercial space, the idea of the technology make make only a fraction, in my opinion, of um, of the overall value proposition of what a company or a business wants to do when it's developing a product or a service. Because, especially with 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 early detection tools around esophageal cancer, we are working on um, execution and and execution operations are very 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 important. So. Building infrastructure that is able to scale is something that that was very very important to us. So getting that getting that understanding to an investor was, I think, the most challenging challenging part for us. Um, we were approached by several people who then heard through through connections um, that we are working on something over the last of the last one and a half years or so. But then um, every time we 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 got into discussions with people, we either ended up um, in a bit of a in a bit of a dead end um around how they think we should position ourselves versus what we can provide and where do we have the freedom to do the things we actually want to do um that was one scenario so where basically there was just some disagree some disagreement already right from the beginning in understanding of where we would fit into the landscape which is very reasonable but um Some of the people we've been working with in Morningside—I mean, being 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 the ones who who are backing us now as well—is they really went above and beyond that and really tried to fully understand who we are as a team and also what exactly we want to do and more importantly, what do we do after that as well, and what is what is the what is the plan beyond what is the plan beyond the execution plan we have presented to them right now and where can this be taken in the future as well and the great the great. Like result of that experience was that it was very, very, very interesting to see how investors approach potential investees or potential investment or portfolio companies. Um, And we had, as I said, we had a very diverse experience um, ranging from people that are supportive from from conversation one, um, people who are highly critical writing conversation number one, um, all the way to people who... Really wanted to just chat with us for a long time. Wanted to get wanted to get well. Wanted to get us, but wanted to get a better understanding of us as well as persons and why we do what we do. Um, and and then slowly took it into a more technological due diligence um, phase. But then that that actually felt way more organic, and it's actually something which I I I like way more than. Than, than the other approach which I just discussed. Of course, the other one is more oriented at high throughput and backing a technology. But I think backing the team together with the technology is probably, probably the magic ingredient here. But striking the balance is more important than actually just backing the team or backing the technology itself. Um, but I think that's, that's, that's what what my experience was from a from a from a purely from a pure funding perspective we've actually spent quite a lot um a lot of time and effort on on understanding on what our needs actually are so how much money do we need to execute what we're planning right now um so that that discussion was actually quite straightforward with our with with our investors um and where to position that because we had a very clear clear picture in the beginning for that's what we want to do and that's what we think is the money we need for that, or that's the amount of money we need for that?
1: Hmm. And I'm interested to know also what has been your experience with um, in dealing with investors uh, from overseas or across borders.
2: Primarily, actually, and I, and I probably have to make a connection to what we discussed earlier. Um, I think it was your question as well, Shreya, around the 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 ju- different jurisdictions, um, Europe and US. I think the mindset is completely different to some extent. I mean. On the surface it might look very similar but the motivations are are very very different my opinion from speaking to people and i think that also um also it's a very very diverse topic and a lot of people might disagree um, it seems like that most people investing in in most investors from the uk or europe are much more risk averse so if they see a if they see a business plan which has a spend profile which predicts a certain number Um, my feeling, my feeling is, um, and I'm, and I'm saying it just like, as I think about it, my feeling is they look at this and basically approach it in a slightly reductionist way. So they see the spend profile and say, Oh, do you really have to do this? And what is the MVP? So we can show that there's a potential commercialization. And we can always pour more money in, like, as we have that proof of concept, or as we have that proof of commercial, well, as we have this, this proof of concept for this being commercializable. Whereas when we spoke to people in the U.S., first of all, people are overly excited, which is which is probably a very American trait about about technology, which I think is great because um, when they approach this, um, they usually don't lose sight of the detail, but they really, really take this. And I and I take the exa- take the example of the spend profile here. They look at this and say, "That's great. What else can you do? And how can you go beyond that?" Basically, of course that. That what can you go beyond comes with a lot of implicit risk in that question as well, and then also how do you respond to that, and what do you then offer back, and how do you how do you put it into context? Um, but this is a very, I, th- I think this is a very specific example, but it's very very representative of the general mindset difference on how they approach a problem. And if you extrapolate what I just said, you can appro- you can apply this on many 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 different. Um, many different aspects of how investment or venture capitalism probably works in these countries. Um, and and yeah, it was quite an interesting experience to see this firsthand because we have our technology and we know what we want to do. And so then having other people coming in and always flipping that upside down and asking different questions, which are either more, more potential oriented or more risk mitigation oriented was very, very interesting to see, um, especially as I said, in the context of what we are doing, because that's where we have our where we have the best understanding, basically right now.
1: Mm. Well, Marcel, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Um, I think the final question uh, that we wanted to ask you is uh, to do with the COVID nineteen response. I believe that you've been doing some work towards um, towards the COVID nineteen response, so maybe you can tell us about that and also um, whether you believe that entrepreneurs in general, um, because they have resources, um, and the, agility, um, to perhaps act in these situations, do you think that more entrepreneurs should be, should be trying to engage?
2: So, so what, 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 we did aside, cited actually, or what are we doing right now? And, and me personally in, in my role still as a PhD student within the university, maybe about the role at the university first, um, we were quite involved in, um, in, in printing visors actually, um right when right when the pandemic was at its peak and there was a big shortage around um primary care and secondary care sites in and around Cambridge and did quite a lot of work on actually supplying and supporting consolidating 3d printing capacity and and getting things out there basically and 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 helping people who need who needed ppe um and who just wouldn't have received it otherwise because there was a general shortage of supply um in the uk um From from a cited perspective, actually, we've seen something we've seen a very interesting development happening over the last three months because of most services in hospitals being being well running on very, very on a very at a very limited level right now, um, the waiting lists. And I think that has been very prominent in the in the news over the last one or one or two, one or two months as well. The waiting lists are getting getting crazy. And, and then, with technologies like like ours, where we do minimally invasive detection, which is actually in our case, much less invasive and much more easier to do in an office setting um, than using a using an endoscope, which is the alternative, the immediate alternative to to what we are doing, um, people suddenly have become very, very interested in in technologies that are um, that are, well, that do not, for example, like an endoscopy, generate as much aerosol or require three people to be in the same room with a patient for 20, 30 minutes um, and being exposed to that patient, even if you test them for COVID before. That also applies to the healthcare staff and, of course, their risk of exposure, um, their risk of exposing other people if they might have COVID-19. So, so, what we what we've then seen actually is that a lot of people approach us and say, How can we use your tool actually to help our COVID response? So what we're doing right now with a lot of different sites, um, and we're in discussion with a lot of different people around that as well, and are implementing that in the first few pilot sites as well, is how can we use our technology right now to help reducing those waiting lists? And I think that's from a from a from an entrepreneurial perspective, um, the the main thing we're focusing on right now as well, because there are not a lot of other, not a lot of other things that matter right now. And if the technology you have or we have has the opportunity to help in one or the other way, and even if that involves some pro bono some pro bono work, um, given of course the funding stage you're at, I think that it's somewhat of a responsibility um, to to think beyond where you would usually position your technology, and then really explore how can you use it in a situation like this. So I actually like back to the second part of your question, I actually always think it's a mandatory must for people to challenge what they're doing, even though if it seems not related to responding to a global crisis or contributing to a global crisis, um, is really, really questioning, or it's, it's really about questioning what you're doing. And even if it requires going out of your way to some extent, making, making a contribution based on that, because it, it's not all about, I mean, it's not about, uh, to me for example my mo- my main motivation behind this is because i'm i i love health healthcare technology like that's 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 what that's what i'm that's why i'm doing this as well um it's very easy to be focused on financials in that context as well. i don't think that should be the primary focus right now because um whatever people can do right now to support to support that um that service recovery as well as part of as part of the COVID uh, as part of the impact which COVID-19 had I think I think it's yeah I think I that it's a mandatory must for people to really rethink what they have at hand and what capacities they have and how they can how they can use that to support these things
1: fantastic thank you so much for um, having such a great conversation with us Marcel it's been great to have you on the show with us
0: yes that was brilliant thank you Marcel cool thanks Thomas thanks I yeah. really enjoyed it as well Thanks very much to myself for joining us on Q-Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say big thanks to the team at Q-Tech who have been all working very hard behind the scenes.
1: Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at Qtech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.